0: Well, good morning again. It's um, good to be together again this morning. For those of us who haven't met, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, For the last four or five weeks now, we have been journeying through uh, the New Testament book of Matthew, looking at uh, a section of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, probably considered some of Jesus' most significant uh, teaching. And in many ways, it kind of defines Jesus's manifesto, uh, that he's describing uh, a new kind of life within the realms of his kingdom. And so we've reached a section of uh, chapter five where Jesus starts to speak uh, some different statements. And he uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said. And in doing so, he's beginning to make reference to the Old Testament law. And uh, and particularly in this section, he highlights six different commandments that the Old Testament holds up. And so in doing this, he invites the listener. And we kind of tapped onto this last week. He invites the listener to a new way of thinking. And so to use Jesus's words... He is inviting us to a kind of righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's inviting us to a way of life that is is more righteous, more worthy, more upheld than than the religious elite of his day. And Jesus has already made clear in in verse um, 17 of chapter 5 that he didn't come to abolish the law but he became to fulfill it. And, and, and so in many ways, as we read through this section of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we see that Jesus is, is kind of describing to us what it means to fulfill the law, what it means to, to live with righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, what that might begin to look like. And so he starts by saying, you have heard that it was said. And then he follows it with, but I tell you. And so last week, we looked at the first of these in verse 21. This week, we're going to be picking up in verse 27. But before I do that, I just want to give a few uh, disclaimers, as it were. Uh, First of all, not everything Jesus says is PG. Okay? I'm going to do my level best to make this as family friendly as I possibly can. Um, But you're going to have to, at some time, read between the lines. And if you're still not sure at the end, ask your wives. Okay, Um, so that's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is that not everything Jesus says neatly um, fits into our cultural moment. Um, in fact, sometimes when Jesus speaks, he rubs against our culture. He rubs against the kind of predominant narrative of our culture that's going on around us. And I, I want to suggest that that's a good thing, okay, that Jesus trumps culture. Amen? <laughs> and then thirdly, some of the ground we cover, uh, it might sting. But my hope is, is that we will get to the heart of what Jesus is addressing in this passage of Scripture. You see, when when we read this passage, we can read it at a surface level. And I've got this image of an iceberg um, in my mind. um, And I think it just really illustrates this. So, So we can hear Jesus say, you have heard it said. okay, And it's a little bit like what's on the surface, the the tip of the iceberg. But actually, then Jesus takes it further. You know, we can hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, and we can hear what he says, and we think, well, I haven't done that. Tick. Yeah, and so actually everything on the surface is fine. But we need to understand that Jesus, in this portion of Scripture, is actually addressing things that are going on under The surface. So when Jesus says, But I tell you, often the far more significant thing, uh, the thing that carries the most implication, are the things that are going on under the surface at a heart level. And so the things that are going on underneath the water are the things that we need to address. And so it's not just about behavior. It's not just about our actions, but it's about our hearts. And so let's read the passage together, uh, picking up in uh, verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5. And so Jesus speaking, he says, You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Let's take a deep breath, okay? Um, Here we go. I want to start by suggesting that everything we do, everything we think, every action that we execute comes from our heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Other translations say it's the wellspring of life. There's no such thing, is there, as, oops, that was completely unlike me. And the truth is that life is not actually like that. That's that's not actually true because, um, you know, when we say those kinds of things, when we say, oh, I didn't mean to do that, or that wasn't my intention, or that goes against my character, actually, it's exactly who you are. Why? Because you did it. Because you, you did it. And although we often try and, you know, soften the blow of that, uh, polish things over, and, and we might say that's completely unlike me. I'm totally out of character and stuff like that. At the core of what Jesus is getting at here is an, unless we actually look at what's under the surface, we will never change the behavior or the outcome of our hearts. And so we can cover things up, we can rationalize, we can justify things, but long-term, that doesn't help because the thing that's beneath the service inevitably will shape what we end up doing. It's, that's, that's the reality of our human existence. For out of the heart, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. And if we achieve nothing else this morning, I would love us to know that Jesus loves us too much uh, to leave some of those heart-level things unaddressed. And so as we consider the context of this particular passage, I think it's important to kind of state some of the things that Jesus is not saying as much as what he is he is he's not saying that human sexuality is wrong, okay? God is the designer of sex. Anyone get an amen um it was his idea he was the one who wired us with certain impulses, and Jesus in this context um, is not saying sexuality is wrong, secondly, Jesus is not saying that. An acknowledgment of beauty is wrong. There are some very attractive people in this world. And we are all created in God's image. And we, we can acknowledge beauty and the beauty of others. Uh, and, and that's not wrong in, in and of itself. Thirdly, he's not saying that temptation is sin. James backs this up in James 1.14. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire uh, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So temptation can lead to sin. And we know that Jesus was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. And so an initial attraction A desire, it may lead us somewhere, it may lead us to some point, and it can lead towards sin. Martin Luther famously said, he said, you can keep birds from, you can't cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Temptation can come, but we can choose not to act. Upon it, and so what is Jesus saying in this moment? Well, he starts. He says, "Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart." And we see here there are three key words that Jesus is using. The first word he uses is "look." You know, there are different words in the Greek for for this, but The word that Jesus uses here in the Greek means to look and hold on. Look holding on. Or a gaze uh, that's longer than it should have been. Okay? Some of you can relate to that. Um, The other word in the Greek is the word pros. It's not translated in the NIV. um, And I know I still stand by the fact that the NIV is the real Bible. Um, but in the NIV, this is not there. But in other translations, it says it says about looking with intent. This word "pros" and that means to look with an intention to, an intention to do something or to act in a certain way. And then the third word that Jesus uses is this word "lustfully," which is a bit of a churchy word, isn't it? It's not a word that we. Necessarily, necessarily use on a day-to-day basis. You know, it's a it's a bit of one of those churchy words, um, but it's actually a compound word. It's it's made up of two words in the original Greek. Uh, the first half is to hold onto, to imagine, to focus on, and the second part of this compound word is with passionate desire. So Jesus is saying some significant things here. He's saying lust is a need to possess. It's an intention to dominate, which then inflames us towards desire. And so to lust after a person is to take away their personhood and reduce them to an object that we consume, where that person becomes a thing rather than a human being. Now, just to get the elephant out of the room, in this passage, Jesus is talking to men. Okay, I don't know why, but he's talking to men. But we need to be clear that this is not a male issue. This is a human issue. Now, one thing that, one other thing that Jesus is not saying, he's not saying that lust and adultery are equal. But what he is saying is that they both come from the same place. They come from an unhealthy heart. And an unhealthy heart, in the context of this passage, says it turns love into lust and it turns human beings into objects. For personal gratification. And that's the pattern, isn't it? Desire becomes distorted. And instead of loving somebody, we lust after them. And instead of seeing someone as an image bearer of God, we objectify them uh, and use them for our own gratification. Why is that the case? Well, one reason could be that underneath everything, we're all longing for intimacy. We're all longing for connection to someone or something. As G.K. Chesterton famously said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is searching for God. And at the same time, the truth is we live in a culture that is... that that couldn't be even further away from Jesus in this context. You know, our culture speaks the complete opposite language. Vanity Fair ran an article uh, called Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. If you're not familiar with Tinder, it's a dating app for smartphones. And the subtitle of the article said, as romance gets swipes from the screen, some 20-somethings aren't liking what they see. And this article, they interviewed a number of young adults who are using these kinds of apps, and here's what some of them said. With these dating apps, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to two or three girls in a bar and pick the best one, or you can swipe a couple of a hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up 100 girls you slept with in a year. He goes on to say, a lack of intimate knowledge of a poten- potential sex partner never presents an obstacle to physical intimacy. Another guy says, I sort of play that I could be a boyfriend kind of guy in order to win women over. But then they start wanting me to care for them. I just don't. The article goes on to say a study suggests that over 50 million people are on Tinder alone, using their phones as a sort of all day, everyday handout singles club where they might find a sex partner as easy as they find a cheap flight to Florida. One person said, it's like ordering food, but you're ordering a person. The article goes on to say that there's this deep lament in the soul of many who use these apps, a dawning realization that it does not satisfy. You see, when we equate um, love with lust. We lose sight of what love really is. In 1 Corinthians 13, we read, don't we, famously this wonderful description of what love is. And maybe as we read this now, we can see the difference between how our, the scriptures define love and how our culture defines love. So 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is patience," And so in contrast, it's, it's not immediate. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. A complete contrast, isn't it? to everything that we've just read. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The thing that's at the core of the human problem that I think Jesus is addressing is that we use what God intended us to love and we love what God designed to be used. Let that sink in for a moment. We use what God intends us to love. And we love what God designed to be used. How many of us love our phones or our cars? I've been dreaming about getting an electric car. And um, but how many of us love our cars or our homes? We just love our homes, and the thing is, the reality is, they, those things were never designed to be loved in the way that we do. And what I think Jesus is so provocatively saying, and what is so countercultural about Jesus in this moment is saying it's impossible to live in His kingdom and objectify humanity. It's impossible to be part of his kingdom reality and objectify the crown of his creation. It's impossible to seek first his kingdom, to pursue his kingdom with all that we've got and make other people an object in our minds. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to seek my kingdom, you're going to have to swim against the tide. You're going to have to address what's going on under the surface. And so what do we do about this? What do we do about this reality that Jesus is calling us to? Well, what does he say? Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one part of your body than your whole body go into hell. Now, I'm guessing most of us, if not all of us, have both eyes and both hands. Yeah, let me just check. Okay, and um, I just want to affirm that that's a good thing. Okay, um, that none of you have done anything drastic uh, in the time we've been in lockdown. Um, and it's good to know that in this moment that Jesus is kind of exaggerating. He's, he's using hyperbole. He's, he's kind of making a point to make another point. In other words, he's saying you could address the issue of lust by simply tackling the physical thing. And and then he's saying, and here's one method. Gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. You you could try that if you like. But if Jesus was being serious, if he was saying this was a method to solve this issue, firstly, there would be a lot more one-eyed and one-handed Christians, wouldn't there? Um, there there would be a lot more of us. And secondly, I can think of something better to cut off that would solve the problem fairly instantly. And so if you're not sure, ask your wives, as I said. Okay? Um, That's all I'm saying. Our wives are the fountain of wisdom and all knowledge. I think the biggest question is how do we become the kind of people free from lust? How do we posture ourselves in a way that we don't objectify other human beings? What does it look like for us to live the way of Jesus in this area of our lives? You see, Jesus is for intimacy. Jesus is is for the value of people. Jesus is for a healthy, vibrant, life-giving sexuality, not the cheap substitute that so many people settle for. If we read this and go, I need to avoid adultery, that's not what Jesus' goal is. And if we read this and we say, I just don't need to lust, You know, many of us will pick a strategy where we say, I'm just going to try harder not to do it. Now, let me ask you, if that's your strategy, how's that going? I'm guessing not very well. So what do we do if don't do it doesn't seem to work? Well, I think the strategy is to do what Dallas Willard calls a renovation of the heart to shape and form our hearts so that what flows out of it is the life that we long for. And so I just want to give us three ways that we might pursue a renovation of the heart. And the first thing is, I think we need to admit in some way that all of us are sexually broken. This isn't unique to some people, it's a human reality in a broken world. Now it may exhibit itself in different ways, but we all carry wounds in this area of our lives. And we can't be carried along with desire without discerning what is healthy and what is not. And so we have we have to become aware that there's probably things in our past and there's probably things in our present that represent a level of brokenness in this area of our lives and we need to bring these things to Jesus we need to bring our brokenness to him as dark as it might seem and as painful as it might seem our healing in this area of our lives comes from being honest with who we are and honest before him secondly We need to do what 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, and it tells us to flee from sexual immorality. You know, the early church was a messy bunch of people, wasn't it? Um, Broken people, people coming from all kinds of cultic behavior, uh, prostitution, strange religious practices that were quite deviant in nature, And Paul's advice to them is this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits on the outside of his body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do do you not know your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Uh, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know, willpower alone is not going to help some of the outcomes of this. And and there will always be things that lead us down a pathway where we fall or we fail. All of us have different rabbit holes um, that reap destruction in our souls. And it might be that some of us need to get some accountability in place. And maybe some of us need some software on our computers that help us build accountability with others. Some of us, it might mean you probably shouldn't have a smartphone, and that a dumb phone would be the best idea you've ever had. One helpful resource That I know many people have found helpful in the past is an organization called Triple X Church. Be careful how you search that in Google, but Triple X Church. And they've made some internet accountability software for individuals and for families. And let's not be naive, this is not an adult issue alone, is it? Statistically, 90% of boys, 60% of girls. Would have been exposed to internet pornography before they were 18. Remember what Luther said? You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. Thirdly, and this is my last point cultivate healthy intimacy. If you're married, the Bible says you should be intimate with one another and that you shouldn't deprive one another of that intimacy, except for mutual consent. And then it gives a reason why you shouldn't keep depriving each other. It says, so that Satan will not tempt you because you lack self-control. That's good news, (laughs) that a deeply satisfying relationship with your spouse gives less room for the devil. Guys, you can pay me later um, uh, so part of your practice, husbands and wives, may be to do something about it more often. Um, um, if you're single, uh, it's, it, it, there may be times where you feel most tempted and they, they may come when you're struggling with loneliness The the desire to perhaps wanting to be married or wanting to have someone to share with uh, to single people in the room to those online, I say the same thing applies. Cultivate healthy intimacy, friendships, relationships. Know what might be your triggers uh, in your temptation and put things in place. And so, as the band come back. Where do we where do we go from here? You know, as followers of Jesus, we all have struggles to face. And in the midst of our struggles, we need to know that we are people who are deeply loved by God. I was so encouraged when that came out at the end of worship. But, that if nothing else, we received this morning is that we need to know we are deeply loved by God. Do you know why? Because the ploy of the enemy after looking at a subject like this is to heap guilt and shame upon us. And so, maybe the, the best initial response in this moment, is to again, just to allow the love of God to be poured out into our hearts. To remember, first and foremost, we are loved by him. So if you're in the room, why don't we stand? If you're at home, I just encourage you to posture yourself in a in an attitude of receiving what the Lord has for you this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, we just say, Come. Come, Holy Spirit. We invite your presence. We say, Come. Come. Lord Jesus, we, first of all, we thank you that you are interested in so many details of our lives, Lord. And that you are interested in this aspect of our lives, Lord. Not because you want to scold us or shame us, but because you want us to live in freedom. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would pour out your love upon us right now. But first and foremost, we would know the affection and love and nearness of the Father. That first of all, we would know that you are the one who cares for us, Lord. And so, Lord, as we just worship one last song, I just pray that each one of us would just be filled with the, uh, the fullness of your love right now, that we'd know the favor of the Lord, and that, Lord, that would, that would motivate us, that would trigger us to, to respond how you would have us respond to a message like this. So have your way amongst us, Lord, we pray. Amen.